Good morning. We're reading from the book of John, chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you were going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, Show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. Because I am going to the Father, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son." If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Thus ends the reading of God's word. I think when, when something troubling happens to us, or at least to me, we, we naturally respond in one of two ways. Let's see if you can relate to this. You know, on the, on the one hand, something troubling happens, uh, we try to ignore the problem and hope it goes away. How many of you are prone to that? Yes. Thank you for your humility. I saw some people pointing to spouses. Yep. I'll be speaking to you afterward. No. No. <clears throat> you know, whether it's a leaky sink or a relational conflict or a physical illness, um, it, it's easy to just try to ignore the problem, hope it goes away. Um, I, I would personally be in a, in a different group. I would be in the group that tries to fix the problem and make it go away. Who would be in that company? Yeah, some more of you. It's very interesting when one of the first groups married to one of the second group. You know, that's always makes for a lot of fun. I, you know, I think if we're honest, I think most of us attempt both of those responses or some combination of them, sometime even in the same moment, you know? 
At, but at the, I, why do I bring this up? Because at the end of John 13, unless we see this, we'll, we'll have trouble understanding John 14. Jesus' disciples are really troubled. Something's bothering them. They, they've just heard two rather unpleasant announcements. First, Jesus has told them he's about to leave. John 13, 33. Yet a little while I am with you. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Remember, these guys have spent the better part of three years doing life with Jesus. Nourished by his teaching, awestruck by his miracles. And they're convinced increasingly he's, he's the Messiah. He's the one that's going to make right everything that's wrong in the world. But if he leaves, it appears to be game over. So that's troubling. But that's not all that's troubling because Jesus has also just told them that one of their own number would betray the Lord, Judas Iscariot. And, and when in response, the, I'll call him the ready, fire, aim member of apostolic band, Peter, <laughs> pipes up and says, Lord, I will never do that. I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus says, actually, Peter, before morning dawns, you you are going to deny me. Not just once or twice, but three times. In other words, what they've heard as of late from Jesus is a combination of, I'm about to leave, and you guys are about to stumble in spectacular fashion. That's troubling. (laughs) Right? I mean, to to say their hearts were troubled, it almost feels like an understatement. If if you can put yourself in that moment, imagine that moment, feel that anxiety and, and confusion. But as he still does today, Jesus perceives all of that, right? He's not blind to what's troubling you or them. And, and though his, think about this, his own soul was immeasurably more troubled in that moment because he knew his own crucifixion was fast at hand. In the midst of his trouble, he didn't say, hey, can I get a little sympathy my way? My problem's bigger than your problem. <laughs> I'm the biggest victim in the room. No. No, in his trouble, he spoke a word that met them in the midst of their trouble. There's a whole other sermon in that. It's a pattern for us today. But look at the word he spoke, verse one. Guys, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. You know, ignore your troubles and sing Hakuna Matata with Timon and Pumbaa? (laughs) No. No. Straighten out your loyalties before it's too late? No. It doesn't go either way with them. What what does he do? He calls them, he commands them to respond to their trouble in an entirely different way than the two ways we tend to default to. What's, What's he tell them to do? To make a deliberate choice to lean the weight of their life on God. 
You guys are troubled. But here's what you need to do. You need to trust God right now. You need to lean the weight of your life on the Lord. Don't, don't look for comfort, guys, in what you know about your trouble. They, they were trying to figure it all out, right? What's happening? Why it's happening? How long it will last? Who's going to do it? Who's going to do it worse, right? Stop, guys. Don't take comfort in what you know about your trouble. Take refuge in what you know about me about who I am, about, about what I've done, about what I'm doing, what I'm, I'm yet to do. It, the blessing of faith, trust in Jesus, is the theme of this entire passage, which is why the word believe in one way or another actually shows up six times in 15 verses. That's the theme, faith, trust in Jesus. And though our, our place and, and God's story of redemption is different than the disciples. We, we live on this side of Jesus' death and resurrection. We'll talk more about that later. The reasons Jesus gives here, friends, for why we should believe him today are exactly the same that he gave to his disciples back then. Jesus never, ever says to anyone, just trust me. Nor should we. He always gives good, sturdy reasons for why we should trust him. And that's what he's doing in this passage. Let's look at a few of these. Why, why should we believe in Jesus instead of being troubled? Here's the first reason. Faith in Jesus enables us to be with God. It enables us to be with God. You know, the disciples thought, that his departure would be to their disadvantage, right? That's why part of why they were troubled. But in verses two and three, Jesus says to the contrary, guys, I'm not abandoning you. I'm going away to provide for you, to prepare a place for you. What sort of place? What's he say? Look at verse two, a place in my father's house. A dwelling place for them with God the Father in heaven. Do you know you could, you could summarize the entire storyline of the Bible as God's pursuit of relationship with his people? Did you know that? You want, you want a one-sentence summary of the storyline of the entire Bible? Here it is. God's pursuit of relationship with his people. Genesis, first book of the Bible, begins with what? A mountain sanctuary. Eden. The people of God and dwelling place of God. Where, where does Revelation end? With the mountain of the new Jerusalem. Another sanctuary. The people of God and the, and the dwelling place of God. And, and between those ends, everything in the middle is about what? Our decision to try to run away and God's faithfulness to bring us back. That's the story. So why the wait in the middle? Why, what is this, I go to prepare a place for you? I mean, is Jesus still in the middle of the world's biggest remodeling project? Is that what he's saying? You know, is, is heaven still under construction in some way? Well, no. No, the, the God who created the world and everything in it doesn't have supply chain issues. Because the, the going listen carefully, and the preparing 
are not two separate actions, friends. They're, they're connected, okay? Jesus prepares a dwelling place for us by going. Going where? Going to the cross. Rising from the grave. Ascending to the right hand of the Father. That's where he is going. And by that going, in the act of that going, he is preparing a place for us. Because none of us are qualified to dwell with God. Let's get that straight, right? He's holy, we're not, which is why Adam and Eve were exiled from Eden and the Israelites were exiled from the promised land. I mean, it seems like as, as soon as human beings get close to the dwelling place of God, they just get exiled. That's not God's problem. That's on us. It's our sin, which is the same reason why you had this massive curtain separating the Holy of Holies in the temple where God dwelt from the rest of the temple where everybody else worshiped. You know, when the, think about this. When the prophet Isaiah saw, when he glimpsed a vision of the dwelling place of God in heaven, it's worth noting what he did not say. He didn't say, oh, that is super cool. Can I come in? What did he do? He, he crumpled to the ground, undone by the weight of God's majesty. He, he didn't enter. He just saw the dwelling place of God. And the fibers of his body began to unravel. That's a problem. <laughs> so what did the father do about that? Galatians 4 verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. By, by living and dying and rising, Jesus does what? He takes away the sin that separates us from God. And he makes a way for the Father to welcome into heaven all who trust in the atoning work of the Son. The, the whole point of Jesus' life and ministry is to take wayward prodigals who have no hope of dwelling with God and make us adopted sons and daughters who belong in the dwelling place of God. But you know, the disciples, often slow to get with the program, like us, they thought that Jesus leaving meant he would no longer be dwelling with them. But in reality, friends, why, why did Jesus leave? He left them to make a way for them to dwell with him forever. Verse three, look there. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Think about that, Christian. Remember, what's this all about? Why should you trust Jesus in the midst of trouble? Well, what's he say there? He says that we, we don't know 
all that will befall us in this life. But it's between this day and the day the Lord calls you home. But, but you do know this, Christian. You do know this. At the end of your days on earth, whether they be many or few, you're going to get to be with the Lord. You do know that, right? And, and when, when Jesus returns and your spirit that has been in this waiting time before his return, already enjoying the presence of God in heaven, is reunited with a resurrection body like his, you're going to get to enjoy eternal life with him in the new heavens and the new earth. That's not just, oh, well, you know, that's a nice ending for a group of people. That's the entire aim, the dwelling of God with man that all of history has been working toward. It's the final chapter. It's the climax of the story. 1 Corinthians 2.9, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. You can't begin to imagine the glory of life with God in heaven. You can't. But that's the only life, friend, that will ever satisfy your soul. Because it's what you were made for. And that, and that relationship, that's not something that you can secure for yourself. Or earn in some way. You'll, you'll never be good enough. Ever. But Jesus is. Verse 6. I am the way. And the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Isn't it interesting how exclusive statements are not by definition unloving? That's a very exclusive statement. (laughs) No one comes to the Father. No one gets to be with God except through me. But it's the most loving thing he could have said. Notice Jesus does not say that that he knows the way to God here. Or or that he even just shows us the way to God. What does he say? He is the way. As the son of God incarnate, the, the person of Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man. There, there is no other way, friend. There, there's no other bridge. There, there's no other means of crossing the great divide that our sin creates between us and a holy God. You won't find another gangway or rope ladder or anything. Jesus is the only way because he alone is the truth and the life. Think about this. He's the truth in the sense that he's the self-revelation of God. Unfortunately, we have to move quickly here, but think about this. Truth isn't a human construct. Okay, It's not determined by what you think or I think, regardless of our group identity. It doesn't come from within us. It's found outside of us. Because it's found in God. He's the ultimate standard of truth. Whatever is consistent with his character and ways is by definition true. Whatever speaks a lie or denies his character and ways is by definition false. So in the Christian worldview, in other words, 
Truth is not an idea or a principle to which God aligns. It's a person because it's God. He's the truth, but he's also the life. Again, not, not just because he kind of has life, you know, hey, check it out, I got some life in my pocket. No, or, or can show us, hey, life this way. No, because he is the life. He's the source of life. Jesus is a self-existent God who created all things and sustains all things. So in this life, friend, whatever joys you taste in the, in the good gifts God gives us in this world, know this, those are mere echoes, reflections of an immeasurably greater fullness of joy found in Jesus and the relationship God alone makes possible through him. It's, it's, it's that life, life in God, life with God that we receive through faith in his name. He's the truth and the life. But think about how these things are connected. Jesus shows us what is necessary to dwell with God because he's the truth. And Jesus gives us what is necessary to dwell with God because he's the life. Because he's the truth and the life, he's the way. So, be honest and ask yourself this question. How do you evaluate your own standing with God? What what criteria do you use? To assess that, where I stand with God. How do you get at that? Where where, where do you gain your confidence that God is for you or or with you or that one day you'll see his face or if you die, you'll be with him in heaven? Where where do you get your confidence for that? If, If you're looking in any way to your performance or other people's evaluation of you, you are not looking to Jesus, friend. You can't do those things at the same time. Jesus is worthy of your trust because faith in him alone enables you to be with God. It's the first reason, and that's a good one, for trusting him. Here's the second. Faith in Jesus enables us to know God. It doesn't just enable us to be with him, it also enables us to know him. Think about this. Have you ever heard somebody say, I've heard this many, many times. Maybe you've thought this. I, I think all the religions in the world are, are probably reaching out there for something or someone that, that none of us really understand. So, so maybe God's out there. Maybe he isn't. I, I guess if he is, we'll, we'll find out one day. See how it goes. Well, on one level... The uncertainty in that sounds reasonable, doesn't it? Okay, I mean, I'll I'll grant you that. It sounds reasonable. If we're just dealing with with other different people's concepts and ideas about God, then why on earth should we privilege one person's idea above another? I get that. I'll grant you that. But but there's a problem, friend, with, with that whole way of thinking. Okay? What if, consider this, what what if we're not just dealing with what random people in random places at random times think about God? 
What if we're actually dealing with a God who has made himself known to us? And not not just in a a hidden or a subtle way, but, but in a very public and historically verifiable way. That is the essence of Christianity, friends. That's that's what the Bible says. The Christian faith isn't, isn't built, please hear this, on some human concept of God. It's built on God's divine revelation of himself, both in his written word, but ultimately in the word made flesh. But how can we know what he's like if we can't see him? You ever thought that? Well, friend, we have seen him. We have seen him. Because he came to earth as a man and lived among us. Look at verse 9. It's Jesus' whole point. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. To to know God the Son, in other words, to see God the Son, Jesus, is to know to see God the Father. Is that true because because the Son just resembles the Father in some way, kind of like my boys might resemble me on the outside? No. No, the, the reason, look at verse 10. The reason is found here. Why is it that to see the Son is to see the Father? Look at verse 10. It's because I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. (laughs) Right? Remember I said there were deep waters in here? What's what's Jesus saying here? He's saying that though the, the Father and the Son are distinct persons... That's clear. They, they mutually indwell one another because they share the same divine nature. And so where the son is present, the father is present. And where the father is present, the son is present. All that to say, we are not waiting to see God. We've seen him. I mean, men like Philip saw him Verse 8, with their own eyes, wrote about it. And not just like a random off dream, but, but for three years in public fashion. And yet, here's the frightening thing, friends. After nearly three years of physically looking at Jesus, imagine that. Three years physically seeing the Son of God. Philip could not recognize Jesus, for who he really is. What does he say to the Lord? Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Implying what? That that Jesus has yet to reveal the glory of the Father to them, when in reality, what was true? The glory of God the Father was literally standing in front of them. Three years Why do we think, in our pride, that if we could just see Jesus, all our doubts would go away? You really believe that? Philip didn't see it. Philip didn't recognize the Lord for all he was. Why not? Why not? Listen carefully, friends. 
It's because of this. The, the great obstacle to knowing God is not A, a failure on God's part to make himself known, or B, an inability on our part to perceive him with our physical eyes. So what's the problem? Well, the problem for Philip, for every man and woman alive today, it is our innate spiritual blindness to the glory of God on account of our sinful nature. We are blind to his glory. Which means that the incarnation was necessary but insufficient for us to know God. What else is needed? Well, Jesus has to go all the way to the cross and die for sinners like us so that what? So that our guilt can be forgiven, our spiritual blindness healed, and we can be filled with the power of the Spirit so that we can see Jesus and delight in Jesus and love Jesus for who he really is. Incarnation's not enough. He has to go all the way to the cross for that. We, we need, in other words, if our faith is going to grow, we need more than a divine appearance of God. We need a divine intervention from God. We need a divine operation on our hearts. We need God to replace our stubborn unbelief with the gift of faith. With, with a faith that perceives Jesus for who he really is and trusts him accordingly. Faith in Jesus, this is the Lord's point here in so many ways. It's not whatever we want it to be. You know, you believe this about Jesus. <laughs> well, I believe that about Jesus. Whatever works for you, man. I mean, we all believe in Jesus. No. No. If you try that, you will wind up believing in a Jesus that in the final analysis looks a whole lot like you. That's a problem. Faith in Jesus is the genuine article. To the degree, hear this, that we believe what Jesus has told us about himself. And we call upon him accordingly. Look at verse 11. Faith isn't just in a person. It's in content about that person. Verse 11. Believe in me. And that's all. Just believe. Just believe. No. <laughs> believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But believe that when I am speaking, the Father is speaking. When I am working, the Father is working. To know me is to know him. And if you don't hear his words in mine or see his works in mine, then you have yet to come to know me or believe me for who I really am. Because Jesus isn't a religious concept we get to customize, friends. He's the Lord in whom we trust and obey because in him and him alone, the God with whom we have to do and to whom we are all accountable has made himself known. Faith in Jesus enables us to know God. Finally, faith in Jesus enables us to participate in the works of God. Remember the context. All of this is why, instead of being troubled by our trouble, <laughs> don't be troubled. Believe in God. Trust in Jesus. Okay, Lord, why? Help me know why. Well, because Jesus enables us to be with God. 
in our trouble. Jesus enables us to know God in our trouble. And Jesus enables us to participate in the work of God, even in our trouble. Look at verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. (laughs) What's he saying? Quite simply, as, as the father ordained and accomplished work, his work through the son, so also the father will ordain and accomplish his work through us as his people. That's what he's saying. That the kingdom of God that that Christ inaugurated, we announce. Or or the victory over sin and death that that Christ achieved, we display. Ephesians 2.10, for we are what? His workmanship, right? Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. Think about this, Christian. If you, if you are willing to trust Jesus and follow Jesus, then you arise every morning of your life to the distinct privilege of participating in the very work of God. Oh, but I don't feel like getting up today. I understand that, right? That de- depression is a real thing. We do well to talk more about that and other real mental illnesses as a church. But if you want a reason to get up in the morning, remember, if you're a Christian, God has good work for you to do today. His work for you to do today. None of your days are pointless. None of your years are aimless. As God spoke through Jesus, he's going to speak through you. As God cared for people through Jesus, he's going to care for people through you. He's he's not just working despite you or next to you. He's working through you, Christian. And your friends and your your neighbors and your siblings and your kids. But, But that's not going to happen automatically. Look back at Jesus' words. Verse 12. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Sturdy faith is necessary if that's going to happen. How does that work? Well, at risk of indicting all of us, including myself, I would say we naturally devote our time and our energy and our resources in suburban America to this purpose, making our life as comfortable and convenient and secure as possible. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but just notice mine's up, okay? That's our mission. That's our goal. I mean, sometimes we baptize in the name of, you know, being a good steward of all God's given me, but still we tend to take whatever God gives and use it to chase comfort, convenience, and security. Until... (laughs) grace of God, we encounter Jesus for who he really is. And then we begin to realize life isn't found in comfort, convenience, or security. Life is found in him. And and when our trust, our our hope, our faith for the future begins to shift from those things to Jesus, then we discover a, a new freedom in serving a new master. 
A freedom to what? A freedom to stop spending and being spent for our selfish desires and a freedom to spend and be spent to serve the Lord. And and so those who believe in Jesus do God's work. Why? Because when you have faith in Jesus, Jesus sets you free from living and working for all the other things you used to live for and work for. That's why. But there's more. Jesus also says, look back at verse 12, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Quick pause, Lord. (laughs) Greater works than you? Okay, last time I checked, just quick survey of my past week, um, pretty much nothing I did looks or seems remotely greater than what you did. Just trying to be humble here. How's that possible? Well, you know, in the cultural context in the first century, the word greater didn't really mean greater. No. No. Look at the word of God. God's word helps us interpret God's word. Verse 12, put your eyes on it. The key here is the last phrase. Because I am going to the Father. What's Jesus mean by that? Because I am about to die on a cross, rise from the grave, ascend into heaven, and from there pour out my Holy Spirit to fill all of you in new covenant measure. Because I'm going. In other words, our our works as believers are greater because we live on this side of Jesus' cross work, which had yet to happen in John 14, 12. So our works as believers are greater than what Jesus did up to this point in his ministry in two senses. First, they're greater because they display a greater glory. Greater glory. Does the birth of Christ display the power and glory of God? Yes. Yes. Does Jesus' public ministry reveal the power and glory of God? Yes. But, listen friend, nothing reveals God's wisdom, power, and glory more than the cross of Jesus Christ. Where he defeated the power of sin and death. And it's because of that victory, that triumph, that we're even able to enter into the works of God. And it's that victory and that triumph that our works hold forth to the world. But because our works are the fruit of his cross work, they display a greater glory. And second, our works are greater in the sense that they take place on a greater scale. You know, Jesus' ministry up to John 14, it was, it was really pretty much confined to a, I don't mean this dismissively, but a rather small corner of Palestine. <laughs> but what's happening today? What's happening today through the church is, as men and women from every tribe and tongue, his ambassadors empowered by the spirit are proclaiming the good news of the gospel to every corner of the earth. What's happening? Well, more men and women from every tribe and tongue are bowing their knee to King Jesus, singing the praises of the lamb who was slain. So, so the global work of conversion, discipleship, 
Jesus is accomplishing through the church today is far greater than what he accomplished up to that point in his own public ministry. It's all his work. Ultimately, the comparison here is not between Jesus did this, I do this. (laughs) No, it's between the works Jesus did then and the greater works he's doing through us now. So, what are these good works he's talking about? Well, they're everything the Spirit empowers us to do as followers of Christ. But in verse 13, look there. Jesus highlights what is arguably the most important and powerful among them. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. What's that? What's the work of prayer? You realize that? It's the work of prayer. The the access to God that, that Christ won for us at the cross gives us incredible privileges, friend. Chief among them, what? The ability to call upon the name of the Lord and know that he hears us because of Jesus and he will answer us because of Jesus. So, So to pray, let me just speak to you kids in the room directly for just a second here, okay? To, you ever heard your mom or dad or a friend pray, in Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen. And, and it can just kind of feel like a formula. You know, one plus one equals two. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what do we mean by that? In Jesus' name. Well, to pray in Jesus' name means to pray in light of who he is and what he's done for us. It's not some sort of magical incantation that we, we tag on to the end of our prayers. You know, like, Heavenly Father, I would like a new Ferrari. In Jesus' name. Amen. Gotcha. <laughs> no, no. It means praying. It means praying what? In accordance with his will. And in submission to his wisdom. It means bringing our requests to God with confidence. Because he's promised to supply all that we need for life and godliness. And it means being content when his mercies appear delayed or denied. Because we know his ways are higher than our ways. And so that phrase, in my name, necessarily informs and conditions Jesus' words in verse 13. But, I'll end with this. Please don't miss the main point of the whole. Okay? It's so important, in fact, Jesus repeats himself. Verse 14. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. That is a staggering promise, friends. Consider two implications of that. First, the primary way we participate in God's work on this side of the cross is through praying. We need to feel the force of that. That the most important work you will do for Jesus' sake every day is to cry out a thousand times in a thousand ways, Jesus, I can't, but you can help God. Oh, but that's for weaklings. You can't get on to the real work of, you know, kicking it strong for Jesus. That is the real work. Because he's not interested in making you look great. Because you're not. (laughs) 
He's interested in displaying his power through weak vessels. If you labor, brother, sister, in prayer for your own soul, or your family, or your friends, or the nations of the world, it's not flashy. In your own head, it will sound stupid. You will find yourself wondering, am I just talking into thin air? Is anybody listening right now? And in that very moment, if a mere mustard seed of faith is present, heaven is moving. Because you prayed. Do not minimize, ignore, or downplay the priority of prayer, brothers and sisters. Don't don't think it's secondary to, to more public ministry roles. Don't think it less effective than talking more or writing more or counseling more or preaching more. If you want to participate in the work of God, be about the business of praying. And don't just start there or end there. Stay there. That's a whole other sermon. <laughs> but we must conclude. So remember when you pray, to pray with boldness. Because the whatever in verse 13 and the anything in verse 14 are not spoken by our Lord to send us skittering into some cul-de-sac of how do I deal with questions about unanswered prayer? We can deal with those questions. God helps us with those questions. Many other places in his word. But, but the point here is that we serve a risen king who is faithful to hear the prayers of his people and eager to act in response to the prayers of his people. So given that, why would we not persist in calling upon his name? Let, let's not be a people who have not Because we ask not. Let's bring great request to a great God and persevere in asking in season and out of season so we can experience his power to save again and again and again. Faith enables us to participate in the work of God. And faith for the main work of prayer will grow to the extent our reason for bringing our request aligns with Jesus' reason for answering our request. What's that? That the Father might be glorified in the Son. At this point in the story, it's high time for the disciples to learn to walk by faith and not sight. That's what Jesus is after. And so to strengthen their faith, he lays out precious rewards of faith. We've looked at those and Friend, Jesus offers the same blessings to you right now. If you too are willing to trust him and believe in him. If you're experiencing trouble, don't respond by ignoring the problem or trying to fix the problem. Trust in Jesus. Why? Well, because through faith, faith alone, there's comfort in knowing where God is. He's with us and he's going to lead us home. And in trouble through faith, there's comfort in knowing who God is. He he is our mighty savior and matchless king. Everything he's revealed himself to be in Jesus. And there's comfort in trouble through faith in knowing what God is doing. (laughs) 
He's using us, using you, in weakness and sin to accomplish his work to the degree you're willing to call upon his name. We have exceedingly good reasons to believe in Jesus, friends. So let's ask him to increase our faith. Father, we pray right now that you would please do that work in our hearts and help us when we are troubled to trust you, to believe in you. Lord, we want to do that because you enable us to be with God and to know God and have a crazy privilege of participating in the works of God. Thank you for that, Jesus. We pray that you would increase our faith in you, Christ, as our only hope in life and death. We ask these things in your name. Amen.